Welcome to the Security Analysis Podcast. This podcast explores investment strategies, economics, personal finance, and stock analysis. It features real conversations and analysis to inform, educate, and entertain. Note that nothing in this podcast is investment advice, and it is for entertainment and discussion purposes only. Do your own due diligence before making any investment. Now, on to the show. Today, I'm talking with Evan Blecker. He's a classic Ben Graham-style investor. He's Canadian, and he currently lives in South Korea. He scours the world for obscure companies trading below liquidation value. He runs a website where he tracks these companies at netnethunter.com. Additionally, he wrote a book about nets called Ben Graham's NetNet Strategy. Welcome to the podcast, Evan. Hey, great to be here. So uh, my first question, how did you wind up in South Korea? Oh, I, from Canada. <laughs> that's a really good uh, question. I graduated in '09, and for anybody who's not necessarily a kid out there or the same age as me, you know that '09 was a really, really tough year for the economy. So, coming into the job market in 2009, there was basically nothing available, and um, yeah, I needed to make a move. I was sick of you know living in my parents' basement, so I decided the best that was available to me at the time was to go teach English in South Korea. And so I headed over there on the advice of a friend. And one year that was, you know, supposed to be kind of some uh, bit of work to tide me over turned into about 10 or 12 years now. I think it's 12 years. But yeah, I just haven't left. And it's just a great company and country to live in. It was really, really good when I was, you know, single. The nightlife is really good restaurants and you get all these neat cultural experiences. And then raising a family now, it's one of the safest places in the world to live. You know, if you just ignore the whole North Korea thing, but we won't talk about that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that's cool. So what did you, so what was your investing journey? Like, what did you do before NetNet? Yeah, that's, um, I had about a 10-year period of stumbling around in investing, and you can kind of refer to it as the lost years. But I took a consumer economics class in two thousand or in my year 12 of my, my high school, so it would be senior year. And everybody was playing the stock game the teacher set up. And this was 99, so... And all my friends were buying tech stocks. I had no idea about tech stocks or stocks or anything like that. But, you know, they're playing all, they're plowing all their money into stuff like Nortel and, you know, the Yahoo's and they're just making a huge amount of money. And the instinct that I had was, okay, well, that's great and all, but I'm going to find the stocks of the 52 week lows because they'll probably go up again. Well, you know, the late '90s was really terrible for value, so I got my head, <laughs> yeah. I got my my head handed to me that year. Handily lost the contest. All of the you know, all of my friends who were buying these tech stocks, these dot com companies, you know, just would have ended up with fantastic amounts of money. And then two years later, uh, a lot of those stocks went to zero. So that was kind of interesting. But that period kind of got me interested in investing and I knew a little bit about it. I knew that there was thing this thing called investing in a stock market. And and then I, I worked a really terrible job coming out of high school. So I didn't go straight to university or anything like that. Decided to work some terrible jobs before actually making the switch to university. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I was just working this brutal job. And you know, after a year of just slaving away and you know you're covered in I was working at a shipyard, so covered in fiberglass dust and oh, you know, wow. everything's, you know, back and forth. I looked at, you know, I was originally thinking of buying a Jeep and I looked at, you know, this Jeep and I looked at this torture that I'd been through for 12 years or 12 <laughs> months. And, and I thought, there's no way this is worth it. So I figured, okay, well, I better put my work or my better put my money to work for me so I don't have to do this, you know, for the rest of my life. And and so I went to the bank and I talked to the financial, I guess the financial advisor or whatever they have there. I'm not even sure what it was called at the time. But I said, okay, I want to I want a nice mutual fund, something that's gonna earn me about 15% a year, value strategy, 
And she said, well, you know, that's really too much. And it probably was at the time, but she offered me a number of funds and I looked at them and I looked at the track record and it just looked terrible. So I figured, okay, well, if they're just going to sell me, then I guess I better do this myself. I better learn as much as I can about it. So I picked up a book called The Neatest Little Guide to Stock Market Investing by Jason Kelly, I believe his name is. That's a good book. I've read that. Yeah, it was... Um, I think it was one that was published in the late 90s, early 2000s. Well, it would have been the late 90s, actually. Yeah. But uh, that one was fantastic for an overview of investing. And uh, you got to learn the different styles, strategies, what, what a stock actually is. Just basically nuts and bolts for the complete idiot all the way up to this is the strategy you, can, you should follow. And this is how you pick your own stocks. So originally, I think there were... You know, a number of different strategies caught my eye. One was the Motley Fool, and that well, I won't comment too much about it, but we'll just say that that didn't turn out too well following the Motley Fool <laughs> strategies that they, I guess, developed in the late 90s. It was, yeah, it just didn't work well. Well, that would have been 2000s when growth wasn't exactly working very well. And I know they're very growth oriented. So that makes sense. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I remember one of the pieces of advice that they were mentioning in one of their books was pick the stocks with the funny ads and you know you think <laughs> about that now you're like what funny advertising <laughs> yeah so i mean you got to kind of pick your mentors so i didn't work too well and i tried some momentum stuff and uh i think it was relative strength at the time and then i did some dogs of the dow and in my eventual or my initial foray into investing i actually lost a bit of money. And after 10 years of, you know, trying different strategies and eventually making a little bit of money back with, you know, Dogs of the Dow and a couple of Peter Lynch kind of picks, I just thought, you know, this is really crazy hard. I'm not going to waste my time trying to beat the market or even do well. I'm just going to put my money in an index fund. And then I, one day, I think it was reading Jay June's old school value. Oh, that's a great blog. I love that blog. Yeah. Yeah. He wrote a really great blog, but I happened upon an article where this guy was investing in net nets, you know, that kind of rang a bell and I thought net nets mm -hmm. were that old. Oh, that was Graham. Yeah. And then I looked up, opened up the intelligent investor, went to the index, found all the spots where he mentioned net nets and, and also, you know, did the same in security analysis and, you know, Graham says it's, it's, uh, well, I'm not sure if he, <laughs> he said this. I'll say this. It is one of the best ways to beat the market. It's one of the simplest ways. And that's one of the strategies that Graham recommended just putting a basket of these stocks together. So I thought, okay, well, I guess I'll, you know, dip my toes and I'll buy a couple stocks and we'll see how it works out. You know, at the time, I wasn't really too aware of the whole idea behind diversification and distribution of returns or anything like that. So it was really a fluke the first year that it was in the net nets that they just ended up working out really well. And I thought, okay, well, you know, this seems fairly easy. Maybe I'll go ahead and really dive into the strategy. And so I did. And yeah, that's basically how I got into it. Cool. And how have the returns been with the net net strategy? So you mentioned that they performed really well and I think it was 09 when you started. I know that was a fantastic year to be a net investor. Um, it really was. Yeah. I mean, I got into it. Don't quote me on exact years, but I think it was 2008, 2009, probably 2009. I got into it initially. And then, yeah, the net nets performed spectacularly well up until about 2017. Mm -hmm. I changed brokers about half, about two, uh, 2000. 14, I believe, went to interactive brokers. But anyways, the, the pre-interactive brokers returns were quite exceptional. And the early years at interactive brokers were also quite exceptional. So from about 2009 to 2017, it was really, really good. And then from about 2018, I would say up until, or maybe late 2017, up until the start of 2020, we went through a period where I like to call the death of value where a lot of people, yeah. um, big names were kind of swearing off classic value saying that it doesn't work anymore. And 
they're saying, you know, you really have to be a GARP investor and you have to look at intangibles and moats and all this stuff. And what was really happening was that we were entering a classic bubbles in, in big tech and the big tech was sucking up a lot of the capital. And so, you know, classic value strategies like, you know, the net net strategy and I guess low PE and low EV to EBITDA those strategies started suffering losses pretty consistently year on year. The net nets, I think, actually fared a little bit better, but the returns were definitely not spectacular. I'm not even sure if they beat the market uh, during that period. Mm -hmm. But, you know, entering 2020, it seemed like the the big tech bubble popped and uh, the returns, you know, started to get it really good again. No, in 2020, I can't remember the exact numbers going off memory here, but I think my performance was around maybe mid 30s to 40 percent. Wow, and that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, it really is quite good. Just classic value started working again, and you know, again in 2021, really worked well, and then 2022 really worked well. I think I was up 10 or 12 percent when the market was down. I can't remember 30 percent or something like that. So. Yeah, it ebbs and flows. You know, I mentioned the distribution of returns when I first got started and how I kind of mucked up and I only invested in two companies thinking, you know, each of these companies are going to, you know, hit the <laughs> hit the ball out of the park. But uh, really, you need a portfolio of picks and they play together as a team and some will do well, some will do badly and some will do exceptionally well. The same principle works for yearly returns. So, you know, if you are in the strategy for a long period of time, what you're going to find out is, you know, you're going to be beating the market for a number of years. You'll be just keeping up with the market on a couple of years. You'll be behind the market in a couple of years. But then there will be a couple of years where you just have exceptional returns, like blowing the market out of the water. And that's really where a lot of the performance of the strategy comes from for in terms of long-term returns. So so are you always fully invested or do you wait for better environments? Like for instance, March 2020, there were a lot of nets. 2009, there were a lot of net nets. Do you wait to see like a high quantity of nets before going fully invested or are you always fully invested? I like to, the answer is I try to be as fully invested as possible. And sometimes that has deviated. So for example, you know, Grantham was calling for, or he was basically pointing out and shouting about a bubble in 2019. Well, he, was, he's always shouting about a bubble. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I bought into that in 2019 in the summer and, you know, I cross-referenced with a number of other guys or another, a number of other high caliber investors and they're all pointing at the same thing. So I thought, oh, maybe, maybe I should get some cash ready. So I think it was about 30%, 40% in cash for a few months. And then I plowed it all in just in time for the market to go down. But luckily, I still had a dynamite year. But other than that, I like to kind of take the, the stance where I want to be invested in the type of companies, the type of cigar butts that I would want to pick up during a market crash. So, you know, if you pick up some really cheap companies that have, you know, exceptional prospects going forward and you pick them up for really cheap, I'm specifically talking about cigar butts here. If there's a market crash, you know, who cares? You already are an exceptional investment. If there's not, then, you know, you own those exceptional investments and they should do well. So that's kind of the thinking I've arrived at. Okay. And how do you find your net opportunities? So in the U.S., it's pretty easy to screen. Where do you find? I know that you look all over the world for net. So where do you find these opportunities? I mean, I primarily just use my website, netnethunter.com. So I think coming out of the great financial crisis a few years after I started, uh, the the American net nets really start to dry up. There is still some available, but they weren't at all attractive mm -hmm. um, for me. And what I ended up doing is, you know, thinking, okay, maybe I have to give up the strategy or... But one of my friends said, well, why don't you just start a website that can help identify net nets all over the world? And so that's what I did. I started a net hunter and I figured that, okay, well, we can share the cost of doing this, you know, among 
you know, a bunch of members and, and then we can hire an annualist and get this list of net nets really paired back to the ones that you want to focus your investment and research time on. And basically where I access or where I, I look for all of my cigar butts is through net hunter. Cool. Yeah, I know that in America, you don't really have a lot of quality net nets that pop up outside of large market crashes. So like if you typically run a screen in a normal time, you'll find a lot of kind of like cash burning biotechs and things like that. And then you really only get the real businesses if there's some big crash going on. That's what I've noticed. Yeah, that's I mean, you know, there's the problem with the North American markets and the U.S., but particularly is that they're just so expensive compared to the rest of the world. And it hasn't always been that way. Like over the past 25 years, there's been periods where they've been fairly cheap on say a cape ratio, but you know, at the end of the 2010s, you're looking at a cape ratio that I think was in the thirties. That's <laughs> just insane. And so if the market is that expensive and everybody likes shopping in the U S a lot of those companies are going to be bid up. And even if they're having problems, they're maybe not going to be trading as cheap as to hit uh, net current asset value territory. So, yeah, that's a major problem. Japan has been okay for finding net nets. I know it's a lot of people say it's the land of the net net, and it's definitely a cheap market on a price to book basis. Whereas the US is maybe, say, for example, you know, 2.5 times book. Japan. Buffett, uh, Buffett agrees with you. He's been investing in Japan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've been in correspondence. <laughs> no, not really, not really. But yeah, Japan is very cheap. I think it's one times book. And I think I read 40% of the companies are trading under book value. So wow. if you want to find net nets, Japan is definitely the place. Now, the problem with Japan, historic recent history, has been that a lot of these management teams don't care about the stock price and they don't have the activist culture to really address you know low stock prices relative to underlying value a lot of the companies have fairly low return on equity or return on invested capital and they're they're very asset or heavy but recently that's been turning around you know previously i like to look at growing companies in in Japan, maybe companies that were growing earnings or net current asset value. And if they're growing at a decent clip and you could get them at a discount to at a large or discount to net current asset value, then you could afford to wait a little bit for these companies to for the stock price to go back up to net current asset value because you know that target is growing while you're holding the company. But I wasn't able to find those in the last couple of years. So I was kind of not terribly interested in Japan, even though they have a lot of net nets. Mm -hmm. But recently, something interesting happened. Recently, I believe it's the Tokyo Stock Exchange came out with some stern words for the companies in trading Japanese markets, and they really want them to address their low price relative to book. They want to get those values or those uh, stock prices back up to underlying value. And so they're kind of directing management to take action in order to do that. It sounds more like a stern talking to rather than any sort of rules with penalties or anything like that. But Japan is totally different culture. And so if you get that sort of directive from the higher up saying, hey, you're not doing a good job. You have to really improve this area. I think that companies are more likely to take that fairly seriously. At the same time, you're seeing a resurgence in activism or not a resurgence, I guess, a surgence. <laughs> so, you know, for the, uh, as far as I can tell, for the first time, you're really seeing a strong activist wave enter Japan. There is some homegrown activists and there's also some Western companies that are going into Japan and identifying targets and then pressuring management in order or to try and get the stock up, make distributions to shareholders, change how they're running the business in order to improve profitability, that sort of stuff. So I think now Japan is actually a very interesting market to look at. And so I've recently re-entered Japan and we're looking at 
a number of different companies. There's some really exceptional buys there, I would say, right now. So the community is looking at that and kind of pooling our resources to identify some good picks there. That's uh, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, I know that Japan wasn't always a shareholder friendly, so it's interesting that there's that cultural change that's happening. Thinking about international investing, so you mentioned Japan. So do yeah. you stick to specific countries? Like, do you stick to, for instance, like developed markets like Britain and South Korea and Japan, or do you dabble in emerging markets, or do you have just no restrictions on where you're going to invest? Well, my own preference is to stay away from companies where fraud is rampant. Yeah, as an outside shareholder, you don't really have a lot of insight to what's going on in the company, not at least not in the way that management does. And if you don't, if you're not an expert at like you don't have a PhD in accounting or something like that, you know, CFA plus whatever else, then you might find it really hard to spot the frauds. Buffett can do it and Munger can do it and mm-hmm. a lot of the higher ups can do it or the these um, big gurus can do it. But as a little guy just in his den or her den just hunting for these cheap bargains, you probably don't have the same skill set there. So my own preference, I include myself among that group. So my own preference here is just to stick to the countries that are more well known for having, I guess, less fraud, more legal repercussions for a fraud that takes place or any sort of, you know, dicey behavior on management's part. So I look at Canada, US, I like uh, Japan, obviously, Singapore is really, really good. Most of Europe, especially Western Europe, Eastern Europe, I'm a little more hesitant on. Mm -hmm. And I think anybody that knows the culture might also agree, or the culture, as I should say, Uh, it's a big place. Other than that, I don't know, I would be I would be open to a lot of other countries. But uh, generally speaking, those are kind of what I stick to. Cool. And so you mentioned activism and how Buffett could get involved in the company. How do you think about that? So I know when Buffett was doing net net investing, he would often become the catalyst. You know, he would force them to redo their operations or liquidate some of their portfolio. Obviously, small investors like us can't do that. So do you think that that detracts from the strategy or do you think it doesn't matter? Yeah, I'm not sure if I entirely agree. I know that, you know, if you read Buffett's partnership letters, there's a few well-known companies that he would be involved in. One was a bus company, I think, and he told them to, you know, return capital to shareholders. But he definitely wasn't involved in all the net nets that he had, but he was involved in a good uh, number of them. Now, as a small investor, you don't have the same ability to, to you know, file with the SEC and, you know, write letters near uh, 13D or whatever, 13G. And you don't necessarily have the capital to, you know, go down and knock on the door and, you know, demand to speak to the CEO or something like that. Right. But there's a guy named Canel, I believe his name is, Carlo Canel. And he's one of the lesser known value practitioners who has an exceptional record. And he says that his activist campaigns are extremely cheap. He just writes a letter and it comes up on on his filings. As a small investor, you know, a lot of these companies have earnings calls. So you can just jump on there and ask a question, you know, why aren't you returning this capital to shareholders? It's sitting there doing nothing. Your mm. return on equity is really low. So this is definitely something that you have to look at. If you get on a call a few times and, you know, there's somebody else, you know, that wants a stock and they're saying pestering management the same way, that's going to get through to them. You know, these are public, right. these are public calls. <laughs> they don't want to have, you know, the same criticism or, you know, they don't want to look bad every quarter. So they're bound, they're bound to do something. That being said, you don't have to get on calls or spark an activist campaign in order to move a lot of these companies. You can invest in the ones where there's activists already involved. You can invest in the ones where where the the major shareholder um, just happens to also be the CEO, and they have a project in the works that they really think they're they're really working hard on and, and they hope to turn around the company or 
you know, spark a new division that were really take off. So I don't think that's a handicap in the least to not being a major activist like Buffett was. Gotcha. And I know that a lot of times when you look at different strategies, stock screens and like quanti- a quantitative approach tends to outperform humans, which would say right. that you don't really need that activism. Um, so how do you think about that in terms of a net net strategy? Do you think someone can employ a purely quantitative net net strategy and, and do well? Or do you think that the qualitative elements are, are important to the approach? I mean, I think it's a really good point that you raised that, you know, there's a number of different ways that you can go about investing in net net. So people make the mistake of thinking that, you know, there's only one right way to invest in net nets. Um, and that's the way that Graham told you to invest in, you know, whatever, pick your year, whatever, you know, sub strategy that he was using then. But there's actually a number of ways that you can go about doing that. And I think that they all have their pluses and minuses. There's no one right way to invest in the strat or to invest in net nets that I can tell maybe with, you know, a significant number or a lot more research, I should say, we might be able to come up with an optimal approach. But I think there's better and worse ways to go about doing it. So I think one would be kind of how Graham suggested in 1975, or I think 75 in, uh, I think it was his last interview. The simple Uh, way strategy. Yeah, yeah. There's the simple way strategy. And I think I think that was a low PE strategy, but it was among I think it was either in that paper or um you know or came out uh it was an interview. Yeah. And then he talked about the PE strategy and then he also talked about net nets, I think. Yeah, and I think maybe his criticism of the net net approach at the time is that he couldn't find many. But he said, Yeah, I mean just buy them cheap and then when they go up fifty percent, you can sell them or after two years sell them just kind of turn keep churning the that inventory over. I think that's way to one way to go about doing it. But uh in the academic studies that have come out on the strategy, most of them form a portfolio at the start of the year and then just kind of leave it. And at the end of the year they'll take a look and see what happened. That's another approach. And then if you remember that, you know, the Pareto principle or the 80-10 or 80-20 rule comes into a play in a lot of different areas in life you suddenly you realize that wait a minute a lot of these stocks are not gonna really yield an exceptional yearly return it's going to be a handful that you own that that really surge in price that are really going to move your portfolio so if you if you just leave your stocks alone for say 12 months and you just see what happens Mm -hmm you're going to get the benefit of those few that really surge in, in price. Whereas if you sell at net current asset value, you won't necessarily get that. So those are kind of two mechanical or statistical ways to go about doing it. I think that my preference would be for the second statistical way. So form your portfolio and for, and reevaluate, I should say, after 12 months, each position. Uh, the other way to go about doing it is to have more qualitative approach. and this is a little trickier because a lot of people say, well, you know, I chose a qualitative factor. When a qualitative factor uh, led me to buy this stock and it didn't work out. So, you know, obviously qualitative stuff doesn't work. But one way to think about, you know, the qualitative side is that they're just factors, but it's not something that is represented in numbers necessarily. So just like you can pick bad factors or quantitative factors in the stock market, you can also pick bad qualitative factors when you do qualitative research. So for example, I don't care if the CEO has a cat. So if you're picking your stocks based on <laughs> whether he has a cat or not, you know, he's an animal lover. So the stock has to do well. No, 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 no. There's certain things that you can look for. So for example, having an activist involved in the company is not something that is quantitative. You won't find it on the balance sheet. But um, it is definitely a factor that you can have for your picks. You can look for the net nets that also have activists. And then there's a higher likelihood that those stocks are going to work out because they have somebody who's really poking management and kind of in their face, making sure that 
or standing up for the little guy, I guess, for the small shareholder. So I think that the qualitative can work. Me, myself, I am, I'm kind of a blend between quantitative and qualitative. So I primarily look for small, cheap net nets and stuff where the company's balance sheet is not deteriorating very rapidly. But then I also like to have other factors in play. I kind of call arrows in my quiver. So, you know, if the company's CEO is buying shares in the open market and there's an activist in play uh, or activist shareholder that's also interacting with management, I would say that's a very good thing. Those are two arrows mm-hmm. in my quiver and maybe two reasons, additional reasons why the stock might work out than it just being st- statistically cheap. So yeah, that's basically my thoughts on the qualitative versus quantitative discussion. I would say that, you know, if you're if you're just kind of starting out with net ads or you don't have a good grasp on the qualitative stuff, then I would definitely go more quantitative and I would just hold a larger number of positions. Uh, I think that would be a safer way to go. The benefit of the qualitative though is that if you're right, you can make a lot more money. Right. That makes sense. Now, when you're dealing with net nets and you mentioned like insiders, so sometimes when you're into this like nano cap and micro cap space, you will find a lot of frauds. You'll find a lot of kind of badly performing management, possibly fraudulent management. How do you minimize the risk that you're going to buy one of those situations? Yeah, I mean, it's a good good point. I think that for me it really comes down to picking the countries that I'm investing in. I think the risk of finding of having one of your companies in the U S turn out to be an outright fraud is kind of low. There's always some dodgy behavior that the management um, may be involved in reading different stuff online about the managers um, is also a decent way to go, but I haven't really found that to be a huge problem, to be honest. I mean, I've been doing this for more than a decade, and I think I've only had one outright fraud, and I believe that was in Poland. I got in at an mm. exceptional price. This small little shipping company got in, I think, dollar or something like that, just really, really low price. And I was feeling really good about it. Because a lot of the members were already buying it at uh, you know dollar twenty five dollar fifty, so I'm looking at my buy price just totally happy. And then a few months later, the stock is halted, and it turns out that the guy just kind of disappeared with the money. <laughs> so oh no, yeah. So my great buy wasn't so great, but and that kind of you know influenced me more towards just investing in you know better countries. But yeah, I mean, also, I guess what you could do is, you know, if the shareholder or if the CEO is also buying stock in the company, then probably the books aren't cooked. I mean, they could be, but I think it lowers the risk a little bit. Right. That makes sense. And you did mention that you avoid certain countries to avoid fraud. So I know specifically in your book, you talk about China and Chinese reverse mergers. Did you actually have any bad experiences with those stocks or... um... Have you just uh, observed that that's an issue? No, I mean, I, originally I was looking at getting into Chinese companies. There were some really good nets, I remember, back in the early 2010s that were traded in the U.S. and, you know, highly profitable, growing, you know, lots of cash on the balance sheet. <laughs> but the whole broads, they were just totally cooking the books. Yeah, it looked, it looked great on the surface, but <laughs> there was danger lurking underneath. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And then, you know, I was reading about what kind what other countries can I invest in aside from the US. And I came across Muddy Waters. I don't know if you know of Muddy Waters, yeah. but they're or I think they're actually I don't follow them too closely, but they had a couple of really good research papers or white papers. And they were talking about the Chinese saying is apparently uh, in muddy waters, many fish can be caught or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's actually where the company came from is, you know, Chinese frauds. That's why they picked the name. And that's originally what they went after. So I didn't like that. Now, I've been to China plenty of times. It's definitely my favorite country to travel to. It's 
you know, the, I like the people there. The people are very, it doesn't seem like they're hiding anything from you. They're sincere, legitimate. And, you know, the cultural stuff that they have going on there, like they have, I don't know, thousands of years of history plus, you know, giant fortresses and food's awesome. I really, really love China. I think it's exceptional, but I would, I prefer not to invest in there. I think, again, you know, somebody like Buffett or Munger, they can tell what's likely to be a fraud, what's not. I can't do that, especially in China, you know, with the Chinese company. I have no idea. Yeah. And I mean, even Munger has had a pretty terrible experience in uh, Alibaba stock. So they're not, oh, they're not uh, yeah. perfect either. I know that some of these shady stuff that they're doing is they'll, they will have two sets of books. And so they'll have one set of books for the Chinese regulators and um, they'll have another set of books for Western investors. And uh, apparently that's pretty common. Oh boy, that's that's bad. Huh, interesting. So you've mentioned some other criteria to kind of minimize the risk of buying net nets. Um, One I thought that was pretty interesting was you talked about low debt to equity ratios. So I've noticed in my own backtesting that low debt to equity seems to help with drawdowns. But with a net net, you're kind of already dealing with a cash rich company. They have more current assets than liabilities. So why do you think that that's an important factor in buying a net net? I mean, you're looking at these companies and the, you know, over the last 12 months, the, the sales have dropped, you know, 50 to 75%. The stock is down 90%. They're bleeding cash. They're losing a lot of money, or at least mostly they're losing at least some money. How much debt do you want to have on the company's books mm-hmm. at that point? Right? You don't want any debt because you don't know if this company is going to have any money or any capital to you know pay off the debts. And if it right. can't pay off the debts, then it's a zero. So, you know, when I was doing a little bit of back testing, I noticed, okay, well, in some strategies, you know, debt can help. You know, it is called leverage, right? So, and stocks generally go up. Uh, so, <laughs> so it would make sense that, you know, if you have some highly indebted companies and they work out, then, you know, they're going to be huge home runs. But with net, net nets, I wouldn't necessarily play that game. I think that there's better ways, um, safer ways to go about investing in net nets. One of the things about investing is that, and, you know, Buffett's rule number one, is not to lose money. You know, if you basically don't lose money, there's a lot of good stuff that can happen to you. So what I try and do is I try to look at the net nets that are more stable that I don't think are going to be zeros. Uh, You know, something that I think is going to have a few years of runway for management to fix whatever problems going on. And then I look for, you know, reasons why the company's either performance or stock price is likely to go up. And the, that gets back to the arrows in my quiver, right? So the company's buying back shares. Oh, okay, maybe things aren't as bad as it looks. So maybe the stock will go up or there's a better pers- better likelihood that the stock will, will go up. Same if uh, insiders are buying shares, same if activists are involved, same if it's in an industry that's taking off or entering a bull market. All those reasons kind of stack the odds in my favor. And so I don't need to have, say, highly leveraged bets and and some will work out and the rest of my capital will be wiped away. I mean, eventually, if you play that game enough times, you're going to end up with a year where uh, you're going to see large, large losses on most of the companies in your portfolio. Nothing's going to go up. So that's not really what I like to do. (laughs) Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, how do you think about portfolio management? So how many stocks do you have in your portfolio? What do you think is a good size for a net-net portfolio? I mean, there's a number of ways to play this as well. It comes back to there not being one ideal way to invest in net as that I've seen, just better and worse. There's kind of two schools of thought here. You can either go concentrated with companies that are obvious wins. So I call this kind of the hell yes crowd mm-hmm. where you the company, you look at the situation, you look at the financials, and you're like, hell yes. And I like that, that, a hell yes stock. Hell <laughs> That's yes. a good way to think about it. <laughs> yeah. So I, I have a saying for that, for the, that kind of strategy, it's either hell yes or no. And so in that approach, 
you're looking at a more concentrated number of positions. But, you know, I don't know if you've read uh, You Can Be a Stock Market Genius by... Yeah, uh, book. Yeah, I mean, in the start of that book, he lays out a table and it shows, you know, how much systemic risk you can remove by adding another company. And I think the efficient threshold, as far as I could tell anyways, was between eight and 10 stocks. So... For the Hell Yes portfolio, I think, you know, 8 and 10 might make sense. Now, if you're playing a more statistical approach, if you're basically going off of the numbers, the quants, mm-hmm. you want to hold a larger number of positions. Now, I would be looking at, say, uh, 20 to 24 picks in here. That would be my own preference. And the reason is because you get a larger, you get uh I'm drawing a blank here because um, I've just had uh, four days of running around with my son. (laughs) My mind's not quite working, not not so sharp, but basically you get a smoother ride on the way up. So, and you're more likely to see that, that kind of statistical return that's associated with net nets if you have more stocks in the portfolio. Now, at some point, you know, you can push that to extreme. You can have a thousand stocks in your portfolio, but at some point it just becomes unwieldy, especially for the small guy who's not doing this full time. So, you know, maybe 20 would be decent. You know, you can do 30 if you want to do 30. 24 has kind of the nice added advantage of, you know, you can buy two stocks a month and just kind of replace it. So it's nice and easy and manageable for the little guy long-term as far as, as far as uh, maintaining the portfolio. Mm-hmm. With my own personal portfolio, I used to be in the hell yes camp. And so I would have very high quality picks that I thought were really good. But, you know, rise if you're in net net land, there's not a lot of hell yeses. There's not a lot of companies where you're looking at the situation, you're looking at the numbers, and it's just a complete no-brainer. Not net-nets. I mean, net-nets are, you know, fairly, they're not exactly common as it is. So to find enough companies like that takes a lot of digging, and they might not be available. um, Yeah, and often the um, bad, the really bad-looking net-nets, like the money losers, don't they tend to outperform as well? So that makes things even more... Uh, difficult on that front. Yeah, that's true. But you know, you don't have to date all the girls, right? I mean, if you <laughs> um, if you selected a number of companies that are going to do fairly well, I mean, that's enough to have a portfolio that does fairly well. So you can you don't have to hit every home run as long as you yeah. every, uh, you know a lot of the picks in your portfolio work out well. Um, you're going to do exceptionally well, but. You know, like I was saying, they're not exactly easy to find all all the time. So what I like to do is I like to supplement that with companies where they may have the the upside is less certain, but if they work out, they're going to have great upsides, like multi-bagger upsides. And so I just have a number of small positions like that in my portfolio. Now, these are tiny, cheap, stable, liquid and there's some reason for me to think that they're going to go up multiples if they do work out. But there's no guarantee that they're going to work out. So I kind of have two sides to my portfolio. Now, that's uh, yeah, that's a good transition into um, another question I have. So there's always a question with net nets of when to sell. So there's some people who would sell when it hits the net current asset value. But a lot of these, like you said, turn into multi-bagger situations. You'll have a net net that turns into a pretty good business. So how do you think about when to sell those? Like one of the thoughts I had on these is maybe you could do like a kind of trend following rule. Like you could wait, you could let it just let it run until it falls below some type kind of moving average or something like that. Is that something you've considered? Like how do you think about when to sell these stocks? I mean, it's definitely the hardest question in investing is when to sell stocks. So I'll give you the best answer that I think I can. I think it depends on your overall portfolio approach, your overall substrategy to net nets. So if you're looking at a mechanical substrategy or approach to net nets, then it just makes sense to sell based on your mechanical rules and just kind of stick to that. You can always reassess and try and optimize a better overall sell strategy. But 
in general, I think, you know, kind of sticking to your mechanical rules is the way to go if you're a mechanical investor. For, for me, I think that if you remember back to those two mechanical uh, kind of approaches to invest in net nets, the second was that you let the portfolio run for 12 months and then you reassess. So at the 12 month mark, you would reassess and you look at, you know, a specific company, if it's still a net net and still meets your criteria for inclusion in the portfolio, then you keep it. And if it doesn't anymore, you just get rid of it. So that's one way to go. Now, if you're looking at a more high quality situation sort of um, portfolio, this would be the the hell yes portfolio, the high probability bets. You obviously have some reason why you think the company will go up or do well or X or Y or Z will happen. And so it makes selling a little bit more tricky. One thing you can do is just say, you know, has that thing happened? Is it still likely to happen? Oh, I guess I'll just hold on then and just maybe sell when whatever potential you see in the company is realized. That's one way to go. Another way to go, and I think this might be the better way, though it has its own pitfalls, is to look at opportunity cost. So you have your portfolio of 10, you know, exceptional cigar button opportunities and and you like them all. And then you come by another pick and this pick has, you know, less downside risk than say your least um, promising pick in your portfolio. It has less downside risk and more upside possibilities. And it looks like things are actually going to happen with the stock that's not in your portfolio. Well, then you make the switch. So it's your opportunity cost there. So that would be the second way I would, I would go about doing it. What's the opportunity of keeping your portfolio as it is versus swapping out your worst stock for this other one that you that you identified? And I think that's probably the better way to go if you're if you're running that sort of portfolio. Now, the biggest risk that I know of with that approach is that you know often you look at something outside of your portfolio and it looks better than what you have inside your portfolio, but uh, you can be led astray with your own psychology. So we tend to think if we find something interesting or that looks really, really good outside of our portfolio, that it's better than necessarily what we have in our portfolio. It's new, exciting. We should buy it. You know, what are we going to, how are we going to raise cash to buy it? But yeah, it's sometimes that's just your mind playing tricks on you. It's just your enthusiasm for something that you found playing tricks on you. So you really have to be certain that what you're picking up or what you're swapping into your portfolio is um, a meaningful amount better than what you're getting rid of. And then obviously, you know, some of the times it's, it's really hard to tell, you know, one being better than the other. So it can be difficult that going that way as well. Interesting. Okay. So my last question would be, how do you, in a practical way, how do you think about buying these stocks? So frequently, these are kind of illiquid nano caps. How do you think about like averaging into a position and getting out of a position? I know that that has to be difficult at times because these aren't huge liquid like S and P five hundred stocks, right? So I think that the illiquidity and the bid ask spread and these companies available, um, you know, over the counter rather than on the Nasdaq, all that stuff kind of steers people away from the strategy and. Quite frankly, I like that because <laughs> I want less competition. But <laughs> yeah, you're a nice guy. You asked me, so I guess I'll tell you an honest answer here. Yeah, it's not really that big of a problem. I think it's a big to do about nothing, to be honest. I know that you know when I was running ten thousand dollars of my own money way back when, you'd see this little tiny company, and and you just put in your order, and within you know an hour or two, you'd have the stock and. You could put in your order for for the market price, whatever it was to last traded at. So just like you would with, say, Home Depot, the big difference would be that instead of using a market order, you have to use a limit order. But when I say uh, the pricing has, you could just put in uh, your bid for a price that was, uh, you know, the last traded price or whatever. Yeah, limit orders are a good rule of thumb for any stock you're trading. I mean, wacky things can even happen with those big caps. So yeah, I think it always makes sense to do uh, to do a limit order. Right. So with net nets and these 
tiny nano caps, if you don't use a limit order, you would definitely lose money because you'll end up buying at, you know, whatever the ask is. And it could be 50% higher than the um, quoted price. So the company or the, the quoted price of the shares based on the last trade. So yeah, if that's one thing that anybody listening to your podcast takes away from this interview is definitely, definitely use limit orders. Don't try and buy these using a market order. Yeah. Now, as you get more money, you have to learn how to trade a little bit more than you did when you're running a small amount of money. Eventually, you'll have so much money that trading becomes uh, pretty paramount because there's all sorts of little games that go into buying and selling these little um, stocks. So if you're trying to put $100,000 into a company where maybe you know only $1,000 <laughs> Right. Um, you, can, you can have a profound influence on the price and you don't want that to happen. Exactly. And then a lot of people say, hey, look, there's a big whale trying to get in. And then they slowly raise the price on you so you can buy from them at a progressively higher price. And so, you know, you, there's all sorts of tricks like you want to you want to make yourself look like an odd lot buyer. So, oh, you know, I just want. 1,005 stocks, you know, <laughs> or 1,007 yeah. is some, you know, weird end price or you break your, your buys up into a lot of smaller orders, that sort of thing, those type of games. And that becomes a bigger and bigger part of the investment process as you get more money to invest. So, but I think that something, stuff like that kind of happens. You get better with that in time. So you just need a little bit of experience. Gotcha. And um, is there anything you'd like to add? And uh, what are the best places to reach you? Well, definitely the best place to reach me would be through our website, netnethunter.com. Just email support at netnethunter.com if you have any questions or comments or anything like that or want to say hi or get lost. (laughs) That's definitely how you do it. We also have a Twitter account at netnethunter.com. I basically just go through and I read um, stuff that people have been writing. And yeah, so that's that's how you would get a hold of me. Other than that, yeah, I mean, it's it's been great talking to you. Yeah, it's been great talking to you. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, you're welcome. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more information, please go to securityanalysis.org. Subscribers to the website get early ad-free access to podcast episodes in addition to weekly in-depth profiles of companies.